neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message on the importance of Jesus and the good news of Easter. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 14 of Long Story Short. Now today is a special edition because it's Easter Sunday. And while we as a church focus on Jesus every Sunday, this week the whole world bends their ear to a message about a Messiah who gave up his life on a cross, was placed in a tomb, but did not stay in the tomb because he was resurrected from the dead and he has ushered in a revolution, a new king, a new kingdom, and a hope for the fruit of that kingdom to spread to the ends of the earth and new creation. So today, we're pausing our systematic journey through the Bible to take a sneak peek at the end of the story, which I hope will give us a lens to see the rest of Scripture through as we return to our journey next week. Now, our task today is monumental. Now, first, I want to step back and get a look at the major narrative that the Bible is presenting. And then we're going to zoom in on one thread that weaves its way through the entire story to see how that thread leads us to Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb, and what that thread means for us today and the impact it has on our future and the future of our world. So if you think of it like a great symphony, now it may not be rated Beethoven's best, but probably one of his most recognized, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. blazes from turbulence to triumph, like its structure unfolding from that first single motif. Beethoven gives the entire work this cohesion by referring to that original opening rhythmic motif at key moments and then recalling it at the finale. And you have all these instruments playing together to form one song. But imagine being able to isolate one of those instruments and only hearing its contribution to the overall symphony. It would be interesting to see how it plays its part And you would get a sense of the overall structure of the larger musical piece while also understanding that it alone will not give you the full musical experience. Now the Bible is much like an orchestra playing a symphony. You have all these individual stories and characters and themes that run throughout the narrative. All together they give you a full picture and experience of what God is doing in our world. But in order to understand and appreciate each of these narrative threads, It'd be like isolating each of like a hundred musicians playing in an orchestra and listening only to them play 30 minutes of the Fifth Symphony. It would take a long time. And we don't have that time today, so don't worry. But I just want to pick out one instrument, one thread, and trace it through the entire storyline of Scripture. Will it give us the full meaning of the Bible and the cross? No. But I hope it will give us at least an appreciation of one of the instruments playing in the symphony. And the beauty of the Bible and being part of a church community that dives into this book, 
We have a lifetime to explore and learn and grow and compare one instrument or narrative thread to another and then in order to like multiply our love and appreciation for the God who weaved it all together. Now, but in case you're new to the Bible um, or you need a little reminder, let's, let's step back and let's get a quick look at the whole story from 30,000 feet to see the beginning and the end and how the narrative takes us from one to the other. So on the largest level, the story of the Bible is a story of creation to new creation. If you just read the first two pages and the last two pages of your Bible, you're going to see a significant amount of overlap of identical phrases, images, and ideas. Like the big story arc of the Bible is that God's taking our world somewhere new that's healed of all the evil that's happened in God's world. But the Bible has a lot more to say than just that. Like it wants to offer us an account of how we ended up in the world that you and I inhabit, and it tells the story of what God has been doing to bring about the restoration of all creation. Now that journey from creation to new creation can most easily be summed up in three subplots. Brokenness, Israel, and then Jesus and kingdom. So the story begins with God bringing order and beauty in a garden out of chaotic, watery, desert wasteland that you find in the opening sentence of the Bible. And what God does is he creates this cosmic garden mountain temple, and he installs his images in the temple. The opening page of the Bible tells us that God created the world that we're a part of, and then he packed it full of potential and energy and all of this to be ruled by his images. That being humanity, who are represented by these given characters, Adam and Eve, whose names mean human and life. And so he blesses human and life, and he gives them the task of taking care of creation. It's like he gives them an example in the garden of what he wants the whole world to be. And then he says, now go do it. Like, make more of this. And so humanity has the function of listening to God and following his words as his images. They also have the function of having dominion and reigning over the earth as God's appointed stewards. And then they serve as this mirror reflecting the glory of God, uh, the, the glory of creation back to God. Now this sounds like a nice place to live and work, right? So how long does it last? Uh, it's like page three. And a new character is introduced, the snake. And the snake uses the art of deception to cause human and life to doubt whether listening to God is the best thing and that perhaps they could reign in place of God instead of on God's behalf. And they start to look at the glory of creation and take it for themselves instead of giving that glory to the Creator. And this decision leads to brokenness, first between the humans and then between them and their Creator and ultimately between the rest of creation. And so the story introduces a problem. How is the Creator going to deal with the brokenness that has been introduced into His creation? The brokenness between humans and other humans. The brokenness between humans and their creator. And the brokenness between humans and the rest of creation. Well, on the same page that details the origin of the problem, the creator reveals a picture of the solution and a promise he makes to the humans and to the snake. So Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Or another translation puts it, and I will make enemies of you and the woman 
and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. So God gives us a, like this glimpse into the future. He says there are going to be two seeds, two family lines, one that comes from the snake and one that comes from the woman. Now, I, I don't think that the seed of the snake means that there are going to be like a bunch of little rattlesnakes and copperheads and baby snakes going around. But it refers to any person who has succumbed to the ways of the snake. It's a family line of snake people who don't listen to God, who don't rule on his behalf, who don't reflect the glory of creation back to the creator. Instead, they listen to themselves and they listen to the voice of the snake and they reign in ways that aren't stewarding creation for good, but using resources for their own self-preservation. And then they turn their worship to created things instead of the creator. They are the seed of the snake. But there is another seed, one that comes from the woman who will not listen to the voice of the snake, but will take his stand against the snake. And in this epic battle, the snake will land this violent blow to the descendant's heel, but this descendant will land a crushing blow to the snake's head. This promise of a snake crusher, which will come from the woman, is the instrument that I want to isolate in the symphony today. One narrative thread that runs from beginning to end. It's not the whole story, but it's a part that we should pay attention to. So we have the promise on page three of the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the snake. And we turn the page, and who are we introduced to? Cain, the seed of the woman, and his brother Abel, another seed of the woman. And maybe we think, oh great, the Bible is a short story, <laughs> you know, four pages, and it's going to be over. And so we're set to read the story of Cain as this possible fulfillment of God's promise of a snake crusher in the chapter before, the seed of the woman. Check. Oh, he's a worker of the ground, a gardener by trade. Like, things are looking good. But because of an interaction with his brother and with God, Cain becomes angry. And then he's given this opportunity to listen to God. And God even warns him, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, sin is characterized as this wild animal crouching, as if it's going to attack Cain and bite him on the heel, and we're hoping Cain is ready for the attack and turns and crushes the head of the beast before it can get him. But instead, it allows the venom of sin to spread and take his brother's life. Cain is not the snake crusher. And we then read about his family line, and they go the way of the snake, violence and selfish gain. And so maybe this isn't going to be a short story after all. So you keep turning the pages. And the next character that gives you hope is a man named Noah. God has this plan to wipe the earth clean, kind of a reset button. And he chooses one man and his family. It's a picture of God's judgment and salvation. Is this going to be the new creation we're hoping for? Like Noah is pictured as being at peace with the animals. It's like he's stewarding creation. It's like he's a new Adam. Then he gets off the boat. And you have this mountain garden picture. He receives this covenant with God. He plants a vineyard. You know, it's like he has his own garden. And then he gets drunk on his own wine. And some pretty sketchy things happen in his tent. And we're left with the conclusion that this new Adam is not going to be the snake crusher. Because he's falling into the same traps of the snake. But God makes a covenant with Noah. Saying he's not going to destroy the earth again like this. Because God knows that the heart of humans are evil from birth. And we get another hint about the snake crusher. He's going to have to have a heart that's different, a heart that is pure, that is right. And there's something different from birth about him. 
And so we turn the page and we find that even though God washes the world clean with the flood, it still doesn't prevent humanity from ruining and destroying themselves and God's world. And so chapters 1 through 11 culminate in a story about a city and a tower of Babylon. The people of Babylon come together and they say, we're going to use our technology and we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens, you know? Like if the rebellion in chapter, in chapter 3 began with humans seizing independence from God, now humanity wants to unite and ascend to the realm of the gods, like right up to the heavens, and assert their own divine authority through technology and power. And so God responds pretty much the same way. Just as he banished the humans from the garden, he scatters the people of Babylon. And so you finish the first 11 chapters, and you're asking, what hope is there for God's good world, and what is God going to do to bring about new creation? Because we know that's where the story is going, but how? Like, when is the snake crusher going to come? And this is where the story of the Bible takes a really interesting turn. So the first subplot of brokenness ends with the scattering of the nations, right? But then you turn the page, and the next subplot zooms in on one man named Abram, who will become Abraham, who is going to be the father of Israel. And the storyline of Israel will take up the rest of the Old Testament. So in the storyline of Israel, we're still waiting for the promise of the snake crusher who can restore this idea of listening to God, ruling like God, and being a conduit to bring glory to God. So you take a look at Abram, and one of the first things we see him do is listening to God. Like God tells him to go, so Abram went, like as Yahweh tells him, and he listens, and we're hopeful. He builds an altar to God. He's giving glory to God. Things are looking good. But then he ends up lying about his wife and says, oh yeah, she's my sister. And then he has a bunch of family problems. So Abram is not going to be the one. But God gives him a new name, Abraham, and gives him a promised seed. That through his seed, his family, all nations will be blessed. So now we have layers to the promise. It's a seed of the woman and a seed of Abraham. So when Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, we expect great things. But Isaac falls into the same trap as his father. Maybe it will be one of Isaac's sons. Well, Esau gives up his birthright. Like, he doesn't really want even the leadership role. So what about Jacob? Well, he's always tricking and deceiving people. But at times, he shows a glimpse of hope. He wrestles with God, and he receives a new name, Israel. Then he has 12 sons, but that family's a mess. Like, the brothers all despise each other, especially Joseph. He has these dreams of ruling and reigning, but the brothers won't have it. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But while he's there, God delivers him into to the second-in-command position. God turns evil into good. And Joseph, he seems to listen to God. He's in a ruling position of the kingdom. But his story ends without any snake crushing. And then after 400 years of being in Egypt, the Israelites cry out to Yahweh, and he delivers them uh, with an answer. And he, he, he sends a baby, saved at birth, raised as a prince, and who hears the voice of God in a burning bush and becomes the leader of the people. He is God's vessel to deliver the people out of slavery and lead them into the promised land. Moses presents a new role for the people, that of a prophet. And as the prophet, he listens to God and then he leads accordingly. He intercedes for the people. Even at one point, he's willing to give up his life for the people. But as close as Moses gets, his flaws are revealed. But in his final speech, he holds up another piece of the puzzle, another layer in Deuteronomy 18. Yahweh, your God, 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And so we're waiting for a prophet like Moses. And the torch get, gets passed to Joshua. Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. So that's a good start. But Joshua has his own success. But under his leadership, the people are still following other gods. So the story goes through another series of leaders called Judges, but none of them seem to be able to get the whole story back on track. And the last of these leaders is a judge named Samuel, whose life is dedicated to God from birth. The Bible says it this way. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with Yahweh and with people. And Samuel serves both as a judge for Israel, but also as a prophet. And he tries his best to lead, but even his own sons end up disobeying God. But God uses Samuel to anoint a king for the people. And the king has the responsibility of representing God's rule among the nations. He's to study and meditate on God's word daily so he can be a wise, godly leader. And the greatest of the kings is David. He starts as a shepherd, but God makes the point that I don't judge what's on the outside. I judge from what's in somebody's heart. And we see David's heart in action as he takes on Goliath. And Goliath is standing in opposition and defiance of Yahweh as God. And David won't have it. The Bible describes the famous story of how he defeats Goliath by sinking a stone into Goliath's head and then going over and using the enemy's sword against him to cut off Goliath's head. And our ears pick up and we say, oh man, a man after God's own heart who has literally crushed the head of the enemy. And we start to put our hope in David. But we find out his heart has the same dark desires as everyone else. And he allows his broken heart to lead him down a road of lust, deception, and murder. David is not the Messiah we've been waiting for. But God does promise him that someday a king will come from him who will rule eternally. So we have another piece, another layer to the puzzle of our Messiahship. So over the next few decades, we find the first subplot repeating itself as Israel and its kings fall into the brokenness of evil, which will lead to a divided kingdom and ultimately exile. And as the last Israelites are marched off to Babylonian exile, we wonder how and when will this Messiah come? And it's during this downfall and the subsequent exile that a number of prophets come on the scene. They begin to call out Israel for abandoning the covenant they made with Yahweh, but they also speak of a future hope, a Messiah that will come. But the Hebrew Bible ends and the Messiah still has not arrived. Now, this portion ends on a question of when and how and who. And so you turn the page and you fast forward hundreds of years. The people have been waiting. There, there have been significant political uprisings and new leaders have emerged, but none of them still are the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so we turn the page and Matthew begins his gospel with this long list of names, a genealogy that leads to Jesus. And maybe we get bored when we read these names, but it shows how Jesus fits the puzzle. Son of Abraham, descendant of Judah, in the family of David. Luke's gospel then tells us that even as a young boy, there's something different about Jesus. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And Mark starts his gospel with a bang. He tells of a man named Yeshua, Yahweh saves, Jesus, who appears in Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. Jesus' basic message was that he was that promised king who came from the family of Abraham, who would come to lead and be a representative of the covenant family of Israel and do for them what they are not able to do for themselves. 
And so we enter into this third subsection of the story of Jesus and the kingdom. The four Gospels tell the story of how Jesus called Israel to follow him. And like thousands of Jews do, thousands end up following Jesus. But the leadership of Israel ended up rejecting him, just like they rejected the covenant in the storyline of the Old Testament. And so what the leaders of Israel do is they end up crucifying their own messianic king. And what Israel's doing in that moment is they are embodying and replaying the rebellion of creation against its creator. And all of humanity's evil and Israel's evil comes rushing into this moment where the creator enters the story in the person of Jesus, where God becomes the human that we are all made to be but perpetually fail to be. So Jesus comes announcing God's kingdom and saying that the whole human story is being fulfilled right now in me and in what I'm doing. He calls people to a whole new way of being human through his teachings and his example. But ultimately, Israel is so bent by their own corruption that they murder the creator and they murder their king on a cross. So, but, but just how we have seen God turn evil into good in the Old Testament, the cross ends up becoming the very place that's the gateway into new creation. God loves his world, but he can't just ignore all of the injustice and the violence that humans have perpetrated in it. But what he wants to do is not destroy his world. He wants to bless it, just like he told Abraham long ago. And so the cross is the place where God's purpose to bless and his purpose to fulfill his justice meet together. And instead of destroying humanity and his whole creation, he absorbs humanity's evil and the consequences of our evil into himself on the cross. The cross is the place where God's love and justice meet together. And we've seen this picture of judgment and salvation throughout Scripture. But the cross is where the judge becomes the judged and ends up dying for his creation. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Three days later, something surprising happened that none of the followers of Jesus saw coming. Jesus was vindicated as Israel's king. He was raised from the dead. And then the followers of Jesus could look back and read through the Old Testament Scriptures and see Man, this is where the whole story's been going this whole time. This was how God was going to rescue and redeem his world. And this was how God was going to bring about new creation by joining himself to humanity and becoming the human that we are all made to be, but we have failed to be. Jesus is the ultimate snake crusher. He allows himself to suffer the harm of violence and evil, and he takes that blow. But what the evil ones didn't see coming is that their violence would ultimately be used against them. Jesus takes their sword and cuts off their head so that they no longer have rule and reign in this world. But Jesus has overcome. Jesus has been the snake crusher on our behalf. And so he walked through the curtain of death. And that's the consequence for all of our evil in the world. And he went out the other side for us and on our behalf. And so the basic message of the New Testament is that Jesus became what we are so that we can become what he is. Jesus is the one who died for the sins of the world, but for whom evil and death did not conquer. He was raised from death, raised from the dead through God's love and God's life. And so the message of the New Testament is essentially to see Jesus as the truly 
human one, the God-man in whom my humanity finds its true destiny. And we're invited to lay down at the cross and to turn from all of our subhuman corrupt ways of living and treating other people and not loving our neighbors as ourselves, as living as, as seed of the snake and allowing all of that to just fall at the foot of the cross and to embrace the love of Jesus for us because he died for us and was raised for us and that Jesus is now present with all of his followers through the presence of the Spirit. And now Jesus' followers find themselves in this kind of in-between space where Jesus really did bring the kingdom and he really did guarantee the hope of new creation by his resurrection from the dead. But we're now in what you could call like this kingdom that is already here but not yet fully fulfilled. And that will only happen when the king returns and when God brings about this new creation. And so the story of the New Testament is a story of how Jesus' followers are called to become these new humans that Jesus was on our behalf and that he wants to make his people into. And that you and I, as his disciples, live in the present as if the new creation truly has arrived in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the way that the whole story ends is with creation being healed of all the evil and all the pain that we've inflicted upon it. And God becomes all in all, and his love and his creative purposes get the final word. And so Easter is a picture of this new creation, and that is our hope. But it has already begun. The resurrection of Jesus is an invitation to work with Jesus and for Jesus to bring his kingdom into the present reality that we find ourselves in. We pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you have not made Jesus your king yet, if you have been hoping for a Messiah or you've tried being your own Messiah, hopefully you see today the good news that Jesus declared. You don't have to save yourself. You can't. The way you do is by finding salvation in the name of Jesus, giving your life to his way of life and allowing his love to change you from the inside out. Easter reminds us how much God loves us and the extreme measures he has gone to show us that love. And that is what we remember every week when we come to a table and we break bread and we drink cup. We declare Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection until the day he returns. So as we go to the table now, let us remember Jesus died for us, Jesus rose for us, Jesus lives for us, and Jesus loves us. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.